have on Dan Ellsworth. Dan, would you like to introduce yourself? Tell us who you are and where we can find your work. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a consultant. Uh, I do kind of technology and management consulting. Uh, I live in Virginia and I, I'm also a writer on uh, faith issues and, and I, I do volunteer work helping people uh, navigate faith crisis and, and those kinds of issues. Um, I, I write a lot at, uh, online at Public Square Magazine and, and uh, blog at Nauvoo Neighbor as well. Awesome, thank you so much. And thank you for being on today. Today we're gonna to talk a bit about Fowler. So Fowler is really known for the stages of faith. That's what people really know him for. Um, could you tell us a, a bit more about who Fowler is? Yeah, yeah, so James Fowler, he, he was a, uh, a theologian who uh, in, in the 1970s and 1980s, he, uh, he did some academic work that where he was observing uh, changes that occur in people's faith. And so, and he, he also started to synthesize that with some theories of human development. So there are some kind of notable uh, uh, theorists in, in the field of human development, like Eric Erickson and John Piaget and, and Lawrence Kohlberg. And Fowler kind of took their work, he, he partnered a lot with um, Lawrence Kohlberg in, in what he was doing. He kind of took their work and said, okay, these people are depicting that human beings develop over time in certain ways. They kind of progress from, you know, the worldview of a child to adolescence, to adulthood, to middle age, and then and, and what happens to their outlook on life, what happens to their worldview and, and, and their cognitive processes during, as they age, as they experience things. And, and I, again, so he was, he, he was looking at, at people's faith and trying to say, does that map onto these theories of how human beings develop? Uh, can you map changes in people's faith to their human development? So he published a book in, I believe it was 1981, called Stages of Faith. And it has six stages that he identified that go from, you know, infancy and uh, early childhood all the way up through adulthood. And, and, and that's the, the book and, and the theory, basically, that, that made him famous. So when we talk about Fowler's stages, that's what we're talking about. So he used qualitative surveys um, in order, sorry, qualitative methods and surveyed people in order to construct this theory. Was he limited to just one faith tradition or did he do multiple faith traditions? It was multiple faith traditions. He, he surveyed, you know, Christians, Muslims, Jews, uh, multiple faith traditions. He, it was, it was a fairly diverse uh group that, that he surveyed. And he, he surveyed over 600 people, I think it was. And um, so he, and, and yeah, it's qualitative research. He interviewed and, and just kind of mapped, uh, you know, their thinking and, and their thought processes uh, and how his perception of how those changed over time and 
and anyway, yeah, it, it's it's a qualitative study, and it, th there is uh, I'll I'll just say from the outset there is a lot of value to it. Uh, there are also some things that <laughs> that I'll I'll just say uh, merit a lot of caution and skepticism <laughs> about the model too, and and we can go into that. Yeah, let's first off lay out what the stages are. So could you briefly describe each of the six stages and tell us a bit about what those meant for him? Sure, sure. So the first stage is stage one. It's called intuitive projective, and that's early childhood. Think of, uh, you know, your kids in nursery and, um, and in, in primary and how they form their ideas about God from very, very simple images and stories. Um, and then stage two is mythic slash literal. And that is where uh, the stories become more developed. And, uh, in, and this is kind of shifting into adolescence. They start looking at different meanings and, and, um, and ways that uh, and, you know, applying kind of more linear thinking to, to the stories that they tell and saying, okay, does this support what I believe or not? Um, so that's stage two. Uh, stage three is, is called synthetic conventional. And here is a, uh, I, I want to spend a little more time discussing this one because this is one where uh, somebody is very firmly committed to their belief system and they are, they're not really open to uh, other points of view. They're very secure in what they believe. And um, there, so, some people, as we talk about stage three, some people think that stage three is, is, kind of like being stuck or, or being naive or something like that. Uh, the, the metaphor that Fowler uses is kind of like a fish in water. Okay, so if, if you want to find out what the water quality is in the Pacific Ocean for fish that are swimming there, you're not gonna ask the fish because they don't even know what water is. It's their environment, it's all they know. They're not going, they've never questioned <laughs> what am I swimming in, right? And so uh, again, it, stage three is sometimes used in a disparaging way to say, oh, those, you know, those are sheeple. Those are people who, who are just kind of blindly obedient or whatever. And uh, the reality is stage three, um, people who really are committed and believing members of a, of a community, they are the glue and the lifeblood of a community, okay? And uh, it's very, very important to, as we talk about stage three, and, and I, I'm gonna emphasize this uh, several times here, uh, there are very, very wonderful things about stage three. And there are a lot of people who, you know, if we're, if we're looking at Fowler's model and really kind of mapping it onto people, there are a lot of people who live their whole lives in this stage 
and have an amazing, powerful faith. They become beautiful people, um, compassionate, faithful, wonderful human beings. They don't, there's nothing more that they could have needed, right? And so anyway, I, I just want to kind of plant a flag here and say that if anybody, if you ever hear anybody disparage Fowler stage three, they probably don't know what they're talking about. So, um, but let's go to stage four. And stage four is where you're, you're starting to transfer um, your locus of authority. So your uh, your if stage stage three in stage three people are very trusting in the authority figures like church leaders for example um, I go to church and I trust what I'm told I watch general conference I trust what I'm told and uh, they're very very trusting in these authority figures in stage four they start to question more and try to you know assert more of their individual authority their inner authority versus external authority and a lot of people frankly fall out of faith in this bridge they don't ever quite make it into stage four or they go into stage four and they're just so miserable uh that they they lose their faith and and leave the, they leave their faith. Um, but this is a, it's a tough time in a lot of ways. If you're in stage four and you're, if you're just starting to really question some of the authorities that you've um, not questioned before. And let's say this happens in adulthood. Let's say you're 30, 40, 50 years old. And now for the first time, you're questioning authority that you You've, you've never questioned before. That can be a really brutal process for a lot of people. Again, that's why a lot of people um, don't move beyond, they, they never are able to get comfortable with that. So stage five is called conjunctive. And this is where, uh, and stage five is where I start to get really bothered by Fowler's model <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, because one of the things that he says in stage five is um, we uh, actually, it, it's kind of actually begins in stage four, but continues into stage five is Fowler says that uh, in these higher stages, and, and I hate saying that because that kind of implies that they're better than lower stages, which they're not. Um, he kind of implies that in stage four and five, you, you start to see things in relative terms, okay? So everything's relative. Yeah, I believe this, but somebody else believes that. And that's, hey, they can believe what they want and it's equally valid. Whatever anybody wants to believe, it's equally valid. Because, hey, religion is religion. It's all relative, right? And, um, and Fowler seems to think that that uh, mental process of relativizing is a sign of advancement. It's a sign of a move towards enlightenment. And it's really not, okay? 
<laughs> Let's just be really blunt about that. To, to say that things are relative, that's usually just, that usually just answers an emotional craving. Uh, it, 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 it's not an indicator of reality. Uh, but in stage five, we have some, some other things going on. And one of those is uh, we start to see um, paradox as, as a, a fact of life, a, a fact of faith, of a life of faith. And I think there's a lot of value in that. Um, in the gospel, uh, you know, as we think through challenging issues, it's definitely an asset to be able to be comfortable with paradox and, and comfortable with, with some amount of ambiguity. Uh, and in stage five, there's a term that is sometimes used called second naivete. And, and that means, hey, you know, when I was a kid, I was kind of naive about some of these faith things. But then I, uh, I wasn't able to be naive anymore. I kind of got kicked out of the Garden of Eden, right? Um, but now I want to go back to the garden. And I can freely choose the garden uh, because I... I've really examined the issues. I, I have a healthy appreciation of different perspectives and my own ability to perceive things. And I can actually freely choose a, a simple faith. Um, I, I do think that there, there is value in that concept. And I think it dovetails with the model that uh, Bruce and Marie Hafen have put forward of chosen complexity, right? or I'm mean, sorry, chosen simplicity. <laughs> you start with simplicity, you get, you encounter complexity and you move through it and then you're able to actually choose simplicity. Okay, so any questions so far, Hannah? Yeah, so when okay. you're talking about, I was gonna ask you this, when you're talking about the differences between stage three and stage four, I was really thinking about how from a Latter-day Saint faith context, Stage three is more compatible with the structure of our faith than stage four. Um, are things like this accounted for by Fowler? Um, because we, we will say that our personal authority, or like our personal revelation, won't contradict the revelations of prophets. And if it does, um, I think it was Brigham Young who said, you'll be commanded by an angel not to tell anyone. Um, right. And that's been something that's been very important for me to internalize. And he's not the only one who said it. I think a handful of prophets have talked about it. I think Greg Smith was the one who wrote the piece on that. Um, does Fowler make any differentiation for this or, or does he treat faith as sort of one entity? Uh, no. So, and in his book, he spends the first three chapters of the book defining faith. And this is where there's a huge split between the Restoration and James Fowler. And we need to really explore this split and not hide it, <laughs> not pretend it's not there. So I'm going to read you a long quote because this is a really good question. And, and I think the best way I can answer this quote, Hannah, or, or this question is with a long quote. And um, so uh, if Anyone who has done any amount of study in, in biblical studies or and the terminology that is employed in biblical studies, uh, we, we have some terms that we use, and one of those is monotheism. It's the belief in a single God, right? 
And let's listen to Fowler's definition of monotheism that he uses in Stages of Faith. He says, I want to broaden our understanding of monotheism. Okay, let's stop right there, okay? You're a theologian, and I don't care if you are at Harvard. Like, you don't get to just broaden our understanding of monotheism. You don't get to just declare it more broad than it used to be, right? <laughs> okay. Well, and we're not even monotheistic, right? We're, like, we're more like henotheistic. So, right. Yeah. Right. right. And, and so, the Bible is henotheistic. <laughs> Yeah, but but Fowler, you know, there there comes a point where like some people, uh, and I and I don't mean this in an anti-intellectual way. Uh, some people are probably going to take it that way, but it's not. A lot of people, theologians in particular, kind of start to view reality as just Plato. So and terms, so they're all just kind of Plato. I'll shape it into whatever I need it to be. Right, monotheism. I know what everybody thinks it means, but nope, I'm going to reshape it. It's something different now. So here's what he says. He says, uh, monotheism, by it, I shall mean a type of faith identity relation in which a person or group focuses its supreme trust and loyalty in a transcendent center of value and power that is neither group ego nor a finite cause or institution. Rather, this type of monotheism implies loyalty to the principle of being and to the source and center of all value and power. Monotheism, as understood here, does not mean the negation of less universal or less transcendent centers of value and power, but it does mean their relativation, relativization and ordering. So, Hannah, if you or I were to define monotheism for an audience, we would say the belief in a single God. So he doesn't even mention a God here, right? <laughs> he makes monotheism into this abstraction that doesn't even mean anything, right? And that is how he's able to, you know, create these stages that lead to this really, really... Um, kind of more accurate perception of reality that, you know, culminating in stage six that meets his definition of monotheism and radical monotheism, which we don't share, right? We believe in God. We believe in Jesus Christ. Um, and, and, and that's not to say that he doesn't too, but in his worldview, those beliefs are, are relativized. They're not very concrete. Um, you know, the way that somebody else conceptualizes those is equally valid. As long as we're pointing towards kind of universalizing principles and, and stuff like that. So very, very, very different worldview than uh, it, and it, and honestly, it's just not compatible with the restoration. It really is not. Um, so anyway. I have uh, a, a quick question, yeah. too, to follow up on that. When you were talking about universalizing beliefs, um, something that came into my mind, and I, I was thinking about this with mythic slash literal, I'm by no means an advocate for uh, like a completely fundamentalist reading of scripture. Um, I think some parts of scripture are metaphorical and I think some parts are literal. Would he then have to 
necessarily say that something like the resurrection of Jesus Christ would be a faith story and a myth in order to get to this type of universality, because to me, it seems a little bit tricky to be able to reconcile that literal event with turning particular beliefs into universal beliefs, if that makes sense. Yeah, so, so what he is going to do is say, anything that we believe, uh, it, you know, as you approach a belief, okay, and, and there is some value, uh, I'm going to say what I think is a valuable way of thinking of this. Sometimes when, when I talk with people about church history, I tell them, I cannot form in my mind a completely accurate picture of church history, no matter what I do, because I wasn't there. All I have are, you know, the historians' perspectives and, and sources and my own impressions and, and what I feel are spiritual impulses and things like that. But there's no, and you know, if, if you're anytime you're doing anything with history, all you can do are, is create a mental picture of what happened. And a lot of times that mental picture relies upon other people's mental pictures of what happened. Um, so there is something to be said for having a healthy appreciation for our own limitations in terms of what we're able to know about a lot of things, right? But in Fowler's mind, enlightenment, uh, and, and he does believe that the higher the sage, the more enlightened the person, which I strongly disagree with. Uh, he believes that the higher stage, the more enlightened the person. And enlightened people, when they are faced with a question about, say, the resurrection of Christ or um, the reality of, of miracles and you know, healing and, and the gifts of the Spirit, things like that, an enlightened person is going to look for ways to think about those things in ways that can be shared among all humanity. So the the goal is not to um, the goal is not to arrive at truth necessarily. <laughs> the goal is to arrive at systems that can be shared among all humanity that that are so you're univer universalizing your beliefs to the greatest extent possible. And um, that is, uh, there, there is something valuable in wanting to share good things with other people. Let's say that. But it's also true that some realities are just not believed by everybody and they won't be. And you have to take a stand. And sometimes that stand is gonna be divisive and it just simply cannot be universalized. Uh, so again, the restoration is, is that kind of thing. So does he reject the existence of truth in the sense of um, like there is no absolute truth, everything is relative to an individual person where if it's, if it's good for an individual person, it's good, it's true? Uh, he he it's tough when you read his book you get the sense that he is a relativist in that way but then in some places he says this is not to say that everything is relative and i'm like okay wait a minute but you just said you know you just said that relativizing is a um you know a, an attribute of 
of enlightenment. It's a it's a sign of enlightenment. Uh, so it, it's kind of it's kind of like pinning Jello to a wall sometimes with James Fowler. Again, like I, I read his definition of monotheism. It it doesn't mean anything, you know. This, uh, you know, focusing our loyalty toward the principle of being or what, what is that, right? So he he has phrases like that, and so in stage. Uh, as he talks about the transition from stage five to stage six. And here's another example, Hannah. He says, stage five's perceptions of justice outreach its readiness to sacrifice the self and to risk the partial justice of the present order for the sake of a more inclusive justice and the realization of love. The transition to stage six involves an overcoming of this paradox through a moral and ascetic actualization of the universalizing apprehensions. Okay, so we the the term for that is psychobabble. Like it, it just means so little to people who deal with facts and reality and and concrete reality, right? So but if you're an academic and everything, you know, kind of exists in this theoretical framework, then yeah, you can say things like that and and you'll get applauded for it. But uh, so, and, and okay, so I'm going to stop right there and say, are we ready to talk about stage six or do we want to talk one about thing, anything? Yeah, go ahead. One thing that I want to address really quickly before talking about stage six, which is by far the most interesting stage, is that this seems a bit elitist to me. This seems like something that someone would have to have a lot of time to go through. Most people I know um, are most devout Christians I know, and I know a lot of Latter-day Saints, but also a lot of Catholics, like my dear grandmother, who's over the age of 90, she didn't really ever have the time to kind of undergo this deconstructive process. She just lived her faith um, in probably stage three, according to Fowler. And for me, it's, it's kind of hard to grapple with this system, which presupposes that people would have enough time to kind of mentally think through their faith this much, which is a very exhaustive process. And if you are like my grandmother who had multiple kids and her husband was in the hospital for most of her life because of a really bad accident, um, she just simply didn't have that time to, or the ability to do that. And she turned to her faith in a very different way. So for me, this seems very divorced from the lived experiences of most people. What would you say about that? Yes. Yes, absolutely. It, you used a word a minute ago that, that was very important, elitist. This is definitely an elitist view of faith. There's no question about it. This idea that, you know, abstraction is superior to concrete reality. No, it's not. Um, but uh, people who are intellectually gifted a lot of times and love ideas and ab abstract thinking and uh, and just kind of dealing in the theoretical. Um, these are things that they might view are superior to the things that simple people believe and, and commit to. And you, so let's take a hard detour here because you've hit on just a crucial flaw with Fowler's model. And that is it conflicts with Christianity. So Christian epistemology is 
found in several places. Um, one of them is in, uh, you know, when when Christ asks, asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Christ says, flesh and blood hath not revealed it to you, but my father, which is in heaven. So that's a, a, a very important verse in Christian epistemology, saying that there are some things that you just can't know from other people. You, it has to be revealed to you by God. But there are other passages where, um, and there's one in Luke, and I wish I had the citation on hand, and I, I don't. But he says, I thank you, Father, and he's talking to Father in heaven, and he says, I thank you, Father, for revealing this unto babes, that you've revealed this unto babes, and not to the wise and the learned, okay? So he, what he's saying, when he says babes, uh, he doesn't mean babies. He doesn't mean children. He means simple people. And he's thanking his father for revealing the reality of his mission uh, and what they're doing to simple people, not the sophisticated, not the elites in society. And there, there are other passages where, you know, he says you have to receive the kingdom as a child or you can't, you can't receive it. Um, you will overthink it. You'll make it into something it's not if you can't receive it as a child. Okay. And then Paul in first Corinthians, I love his discussions of Christian epistemology where he just says, you know, uh, God uses the weak and the unlearned, um, the people who are not wise and impressive as to the ways of the world to accomplish his purposes. So Christian epistemology turns enlightenment epistemology upside down. Christian epistemology says that if you want to know the reality of God, you have to either rely on the witness testimony of simple people, or you have to be able to be a simple person. And if, if you are a simple person, great. You have that Christian advantage in knowing the reality of God. But if, if you have, you know, for whatever reason, come to a more, you know, more sophisticated ways of thinking about life and the world, you might have to choose to be a simple person in order to perceive God's reality. You might have to choose simplicity. And that's, that's very, very hard for a lot of people. So anyway, that's, that is a huge, huge uh, point that we need to be very clear about is this is not compatible with Christian epistemology. The citation for the Luke verses, Luke 10, 21, um, at that time, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and declared, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. I, I do agree with you that this seems really incompatible with Christian epistemology. It seems really incompatible with most people's religious experiences who are Christian, um, because we have such a strong a strong tradition of witnesses, especially in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, where we believe because of the witnesses, like Christ said to believe in John 20, because of the witnesses, um, and using Thomas as an example, blessed are those who believe without seeing. Um, let's move on to stage six. Tell us 
what stage six is and why stage six is the uh, the most destructive. <laughs> okay, so stage six, um, stage six is a huge problem. So what Fowler says about stage six is, uh, he says stage six is where somebody has basically pivoted toward a relentless activism. They are, they've almost kind of transcended um, their, uh, their attachment to very specific beliefs. They've become so skeptical in their ability to perceive things that they, the, the, the big reality that they grasp is that the world needs to become better and I need to be relentless and making it better. And that is, you know, the kind of the highest manifestation of faith. And he, so he puts forward some examples like Martin Luther King, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, I think he might've said Mother Teresa as well. Uh, and so great examples of, of people in a lot of ways, right? So the, but the problem is, <laughs> and he's, he's actually very honest about uh, a problem with stage six, or, or he makes an observation about stage six that's really interesting. He says that whenever he presents his stages to audiences, people fixate on stage six. It's all they want to talk about. <clears throat> and he, he says that the more secular the audience Okay, secular, non-believing, the more they fixate on stage six. So right there, that should be a huge red flag, uh, you know, as to the validity of this model and, and what's behind it. Now, Fowler is also, he, he also kind of openly acknowledges like, hey, I'm saying that these kind of activist personalities are the most enlightened, yet you know, you, there are a lot of people who could look at stage six and say, yeah, you know, Vladimir Lenin, um, Mao Zedong, these people were relentless in their activism, right? <laughs> and, um, you know, you could, you could point to any number of really brutal, horrible people in history who are just so, they've transcended, their need for concrete reality and they're just 100% activists, right? Um, so that is, uh, that's the problem with stage six is, and I wrote a, an Easter article for Public Square Magazine where I talked about this, how uh, if you're, if, if you have secular minded people fixating and gravitating towards stage six, why? What are they doing? They're not really trying to understand faith. They're trying to, what they're, they're not looking for enlightenment. They're looking for relief. Okay. So if you're a secular minded person and you know that people in a faith community, there are people who believe in the gifts of the spirit. They believe in the literal resurrection. And there are people who talk about these things and, and talk about, powerful, you know, uh, miraculous experiences and things like that. And you have this community with all this amazing witness testimony of 
divine involvement in the church, for example. Um, but you're a secular-minded person, and there's so much you appreciate about that community, but you can't relate to the God part of it, right? Then, of course, you're going to go to Fowler's Stage 6, and you're going to go there to validate yourself. You're going to go there for relief from <laughs> the tension you feel between your worldview and, and the worldview of these wonderful people in your community who are simple people who you can't relate to, right? So stage six is very deceptive in that way. I'll give you an example of why I think it's fatally flawed. And that is, um, so I'll ask you a question, Hannah. If you were to point to somebody in church history or, or even in the church in, in modern times who you think is an example of like the highest possible level of spiritual enlightenment, who would you envision? Joseph Smith, um, either Joseph Smith or President Oaks, honestly, um, and what they share. And I know a lot of people will say that they're very different, um, but I think that they, they share this understanding of being really grounded in spiritual truths to the point where even though they are both very creative thinkers, I, I, I don't think we can deny that. Like, you know, Joseph Smith had some very out of the box ideas. Um, I was talking the other day about Joseph Smith's ideas for prison reform, um, where he said like reason and friendship. And that just, the way that he approaches things really resonates with me, but also the way that President Oaks approaches things really resonates with me too, because he's willing to differentiate between agency and freedom in a way that allows for different ideas on law. But with all that being said, both of them constantly point to their witnesses as being the important part. So like, those are the people that really resonate with me. Okay, so let's talk about Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith, if you were to try to, you know, erroneously paint him as stage six, like, oh, he has this just amazingly imaginative mind for reform and activism and blah, blah, blah. Well, the reality is, and I, one of my favorite experiences from well, stories from the life of Joseph Smith is when his father was baptized in the church. Mm -hmm. And Joseph, he had this emotional meltdown, just absolutely sobbing. And he said, I've lived to see my father baptized in the church of Jesus Christ. And then witnesses said he went off alone and just sobbed. He was inconsolable, couldn't even handle it. That means Joseph believes in a very, very concrete reality that this is the church of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, he wouldn't react that way. He'd probably shake his dad's hand and say, good job, dad. <laughs> right? He's not going to have this huge meltdown like he did. Um, this is a man who absolutely 100% believed that what was happening was so unique, so unique. Uh, and based on his experiences, you know, that, that's how he got that conviction. Another is the building of the Kirtland Temple. Mm. Uh, the building of the Kirtland Temple, you know, when you think about, okay, what is the wildest thing that a religious reformer could do in the time of Joseph Smith? It might be, hey, let's restore Old Testament temple worship, <laughs> right? That is like uh, impossible to fathom that he would do something so concrete and honestly so exclusive, build this building that 
you know, uh, and it was so it's not like he Joseph Smith said, okay, we all just need to kind of come together as a community and focus our energies on tapping into our universal collective conscious or no, he said, we have to build a temple and sacrifice for it. Here's the design that was given me directly from the Lord, you know, very, very specific concrete action. So, and, and President Oaks, he, he has an amazing mind for paradox and for some of these things that we talk about in stage five, but absolutely 100% committed to very basic gospel realities like missionary work, um, you know, service, temple work, and all of these things that are not universal. They're very unique. Um, I'll put forward a couple. Uh, one of them is John the Baptist. So John the Baptist, when you read of his preaching, um, it's really cool. He, he has kind of a, I know it's a pejorative, I know it's a, it's an inflammatory term, but kind of a social justice message. You know, the kingdom is coming and people say, what should we do? Well, you give to the poor, be honest, be content with your wages, you know, all of these things that are very about creating a, a good, just society, right? And so you, and Jesus says that there, there never was a, a better prophet than John up until that point. There hasn't been a better prophet than this. So Jesus is more or less saying this is enlightenment. It doesn't get any better than John the Baptist, folks, right? And John, yeah, he did have this activist vision, but what was he doing? He was baptizing people, baptizing them, not just sitting around contemplating God or contemplating the wonder of being, right? He's actually baptizing people in a river, making them come to him. And then he's killed because he goes and challenges um, Herod Antipas about a decision that he made in his personal life that was in violation of Jewish law. So it's not like John just floats above all of these kinds of things, you know. <laughs> uh, he's very, very committed to very specific aspects of his religion that are very unique and not universal. So John the Baptist is one that I think of. Another is Spencer W. Kimball. Um, Spencer W. Kimball, I... It, it, in Fowler's model, I would place him stage three, four-ish. Um, and I, I, I can't think of a more enlightened human being uh, in my lifetime than Spencer W. Kimball. I can't. Um, and I've, I've written about him. Like when you read stories of his life and the things he said he did and, and the way that people experienced you know, um, their interactions with him and stuff. I, I, don't, I don't know of anybody more enlightened than Spencer W. Kimball in my lifetime, right? Never, I, I don't think, I, I can't think of any of his talks or, or teachings that really went into these areas of abstraction like paradox and mystery and those kinds of things. Um, so 
that's a fatal flaw in Fowler's model as we think about the restoration. If Spencer W. Kimball is the model of enlightenment, if, you know, and President Nelson as well, he doesn't do a whole lot of theoretical abstraction. He's very concrete. There are things that need to get done. Israel needs to be gathered, right? And he is a beautiful, profoundly compassionate soul who wants to, he loves the entire world. Um, I, I consider him, you know, I, 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 if you were to grade somebody on enlightenment, he gets an A. There's not a higher grade, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, so, so we are, we're definitely looking at things from a very different perspective than Fowler. We have a very different starting point. We believe in a very literally resurrected Jesus Christ, who very literally has appeared to people in this dispensation, very literally communicates to his servants in, in church leadership. Um, and even, you know, those of us here at, at the local level, as we're performing our callings, um, we don't just float above all these things and, you know, just kind of come together around our universalizing sense of being that, what is that, you know? Um, and, and so Fowler, if, if somebody were to try to form a community based on Fowler's principles, they would never be able to do it. You can't, um, you know, saying, Hey, let's, let's form a community of people at stage five. Um, Cause that's just such a high degree of enlightenment. Oh, they, they would dissipate. They would not stay together because they don't really, they can't believe concretely enough to make commitments and sacrifices that happens at stage three. That's where the energy is. That's where the miracles are. It's where the believers are. So anyway. I think that's, I think that's a really good point. While you were talking, I was also thinking about um, Elder Holland and Elder Uchtdorf, um, who both really focus on, um, like I see Elder Holland's main message as to give to the poor. And I see Elder Uchtdorf's main message as to welcome people in. And those are very, very concrete ideas and very, and they, provide very actionable steps on how to do those things. It's not like something that they, you know, they, they don't provide much of a theoretical framework for why one should do it. They, they simply say, go and do it. And I feel like a lot of Latter-day Saint faith is more rooted in action than it is in belief. Joseph Smith said something to the effect of that, like he would, yeah, like he doesn't want to bar anyone from the community because of belief. And he also said that he would prefer, um, Oh, it's like one of my favorite quotes. He said that he would prefer someone who swears like a long stream of swears, but is charitable over someone who's a smooth faced hypocrite. And when I think, when I think about that, I think about how so much of Latter-day Saint faith has this root in charity being the highest good. And if charity is the highest good, then sitting around thinking about your beliefs. And this is coming from someone who quite literally, you know, my, my, my work in my school all re relates to me thinking through my beliefs because I, I spend so much time doing things like that but that's not really the point of religion religion is lived not thought through which is one of the things that kind of struck me about this model is that I think there are some positive elements to that and that's what I want to transition to talking about but I do think it presents a really weird view of reality and a very weird view of religion um, I understand that some people can kind of go through these stages 
and have a more developed phase from it and that it might work for them. But for me, the point of religion isn't necessarily to, you know, compare my beliefs to the beliefs of God, but it's to accept the beliefs of God and have those become my own, to become more like God, not to become more like myself. Right. Um, let's yes. talk a little bit about faith crisis, though, too, um, because that's something that I think is pretty necessary in a conversation about Fowler. Um, how do you think that this model can be helpful for faith crisis, but also how could it be hurtful for faith crisis? And you went through a pretty significant faith crisis. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, th this model can be very helpful um, for somebody in faith crisis. And the reason for that is if you're able to see what you're going through in terms of development rather than uh, sin or <laughs> sin and righteousness or honor shame, <laughs> these other kind of ways that we often see the world. Um, so let's say, for example, you, um, you read the gospel topic essays on the church website, and you've always had a very simplistic view of Book of Mormon translation. And here the church is, is saying, hey, you know, there are different ways of thinking about it, or, or, you know, the Book of Abraham or any number of these issues. And all of a sudden you're, you're getting exposed to the reality that some of these things are complex, and um, you might internalize that experience in a way, in, in a terms of shame, right? Um, and you might then feel like, oh, I'm embarrassed that I didn't know that these things are complex. Um, and here I am, you know, I'm 30, 35 years old, and I didn't know that there's so much more that I didn't know, blah, blah, blah. Um, if you're able to just see these things in terms of development and say, you know what, I am a growing and developing person. My mind, my worldview, my ways of processing the world are going to adapt and change over time. You know, I, I'm going to go through experiences that are going to cause me to shift the ways I process the world. And it's perfectly normal if aspects of my faith also are processed differently as a result of that. If you're able to see it that way, then you're not going to be embarrassed or ashamed or think there's something wrong with you or God hates me or any of these other things that that cause so much pain in, in faith crisis, right? And if you're able to process it with a more level head that way, with more self-compassion and just see yourself as learning and growing, you you're going to be able to get better answers to your questions too, because they won't, it won't be like everything is at level 10 intensity, right? I can work through things. I have plenty of time. I'm growing, I'm learning. Um, so Fowler's stages are very good for that reason. You can, if you're able to see, oh, I'm, I'm kind of, because of this or that life experience, I'm questioning authority more than I used to. You know, some people around you might say, oh, you're apostate for questioning authority. No, 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 no. It's, it's kind of a normal part of life to, to 
think through things and say, okay, let me weigh that. And, you know, anyway, I, I really appreciate that part of, of Fowler, the fact that it can take the shame and self-condemnation element out of a faith crisis. That does sound very useful. I do think that we need to take away less, uh, I, need, I think we need to take away shame from faith crises because on a pragmatic level, beyond the fact that I don't think shame is helpful, um, besides like godly guilt, but that's, that's different. On a pragmatic level, if someone experiences shame, they're going to turn to someone outside of the community to answer their questions. And I would prefer to be the person that someone went to with a faith crisis rather than someone who has completely deconstructed their faith um, and then will attempt to deconstruct someone else's faith, whether they realize it or not. You know, I do think that that's something that is hard to be aware of. Um, it's hard for me to not deconstruct another Catholic's faith when I talk to a Catholic who's in faith crisis, because for me, I just don't accept the model. Um, so I think that recognizing that as is important too, is when we're talking about faith crises, that we want to make sure that we're not shaming people because we want to be able to help them. Um, how can this model be hurtful to someone in a faith crisis, especially stage six? Because I see stages four and stage six as being hurtful. I'm not saying that questioning authority is hurtful. I've questioned authority before too. Then I've questioned the prophets and apostles. Um, I'm still in the church. I'm still pretty orthodox. So I, I went down a different path. But how can these stages sort of, um, we, we talked about the conflict with epistemology. So how can they deconstruct someone's faith without them realizing it necessarily? So part of the problem is they can look at these stages and think that, uh, so, so when somebody's in faith crisis, ideally, uh, ideally they are seeking through study and faith to resolve their issues. And part of that faith part of the equation is ideally they are really deeply um, learning to, to be patient and really tune into what God wants to teach them. So if I come to faith crisis with a stack of problems and let's go with the usual ones, you know, Book of Abraham, polygamy, the priesthood ban, and all these things. And I have this huge stack of problems. And I say, and I'm praying, saying, God, I need you to resolve these. And then I'm going to dive in and read things and read things and read things. And then I read critical things. And I go, and it's this seesaw of critical apologetic. And, and people just get exhausted and they burn out, right? Um, if you look at Fowler, and you say, and all you do is say, oh, you know, I can transcend the need for answers because I can just be appreciative of ambiguity and blah, blah, blah. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're doing that instead of doing the hard work of connecting to God, then all you have is ambiguity and no authentic relationship with God. Um, there were a couple of things that happened during my faith crisis that were just miraculous, just these beautiful experiences out of the blue, unexpected, where God was able to give me answers. Um, and that was in addition to all of my study and my wrestling with things. 
and my, you know, newfound comfort with ambiguity, or I guess an, an appreciation for how little I can really know about some issues. That that might be a better way of phrasing it. If if somebody just looks at Fowler and says, oh, I'll just progress along these stages and I'll free myself from the burden of really coming to know God and listen and being surprised by God and and that's a problem. And, and honestly, a lot of people do that. Again, it's a reason why secular-minded people fixate on stage six. They think it's, they're, they're looking for relief from, you know, the, this psychic burden of believing things that are foreign to their experience. And that's not good. We want, we want people in faith crisis to come out of that crisis and say, I'm committed to the church. I believe in the restoration. And in this faith crisis process, I actually connected with God and was led along the way patiently over time and emerged with my faith intact. That's what we want to see. I agree with that. I think, I think my problem with this is it seems so dialectical when faith is much more relational, at least in my view. Um, I'm kind of a fideous, you know, I, I, I kind of, I will choose faith in a lot of instances as a, as opposed to um, like a reasonable explanation in terms of my own personal experience, not necessarily in terms of anything else. Um, so I, I do struggle with the view that this presents in a lot of different ways. Um, but I wanted to just kind of close with asking you, um, what do you think a better uh, model of faith is as opposed to Fowler for Latter-day Saints to turn to? So I, I, re I highly recommend the model that has been put forward by Bruce and Marie Hafen uh, in their book, Faith is Not Blind. I strongly recommend that, that model of uh, simplicity and then complexity and then being able to move into a chosen simplicity after we get our exposure to complexity. I really love that model. Um, but if we were to revamp Fowler's model, um, you know, if we were and, and tweak it and, you know, kind of uh, say, okay, what, what, a, what aspects of this model reflect our Latter-day Saint witness testimony and, and our lived experiences? We could do that. We could, we could actually show a progression you know, when somebody's in primary and then young adulthood or adolescence, young adulthood mission, and we could show a lot of things and say, ideally, by this point in your journey, this has happened. Uh, ideally, by this point in your journey, this has happened. And, um, but again, the fundamental difference is how we define enlightenment, because Stage six of Fowler defines enlightenment as activism and kind of a relief from believing a lot of specific things. And that is the opposite of, of what we know. Um, people who have actual, you know, really close encounters with God are asked to do very specific non-universal things that is enlightenment it's it's that ability to to listen to god and have a life that's in harmony with god's will 
Awesome. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you coming on. I think we'll end it here with your testimony. Um, I love having people bear their testimonies because I think that a witness is one of the strongest things. And it just seems really fitting in a conversation about stages of faith where I think I kind of outed myself here as a between stage three and stage four. Um, so I guess I'm not that enlightened according to Fowler, but that's okay. Uh, no, I mean, that is some of the most enlightened people you will ever meet never leave stage three. And they are at the highest levels of enlightenment that are possible for people to achieve in this life right there in stage three. <laughs> so, um, I mean, stage three can produce beautiful souls who understand revelation, who live with their, the gifts of the spirit and, and all of that. Um, but as far as my testimony, I, I, what I, what I often say is, um, when I look at the gospel, there are, I can't say that I know every aspect of the gospel to be true. There are things that I know, and there are things that I have a high degree of confidence in. And then there are some things that I just choose to believe. They seem right. Um, they make sense to me. Um, but the things that I know, I know. Um, I know that that the atonement of Christ is a fact. It is real. I've experienced it many, like so many times. It's, it's, uh, I, I can't say that I know that any less than I know any other aspect of my experiences. Um, and I know from my mission experiences and, and other things that God is involved in the work of this church um, and I've had plenty of experiences that have shown me that God loves his servants, Joseph Smith and, and our modern prophets, that he is involved in, in what they're doing. He's inspiring them. And, um, you know, I've seen my own life. I, I'm pretty actually a stickler about my Book of Mormon reading. I read it just about every morning. Um, and, the, and I see the results, the fruits of that every day. I, I just feel so much better <laughs> when I do that than in times of my life where I, I haven't been regular about that. Um, there's a lot of power in that book. And, and that's something that I know from experience. And I also, I'm firmly in the camp of historicity. I believe it's a historical record. So there's my testimony. Awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you for coming on today. Where can we find your latest work? Because you're coming out with an article in Fowler, right? Yeah. Uh, Public Square Magazine um, is where uh, I'm, I'm going to publish that. And I'm going to talk about Fowler and the resurrection. <laughs> the resurrection is a very, very concrete reality. Well, you know, if you're kind of in the mindset of Fowler, how do you deal with that? And so that article's uh, coming out here in time for Easter. And I also blog over at Nauvoo Neighbor. Awesome. Thank you so much.